Zorta, I think you can go ahead. Okay, thank you very much, Nicholas. Um, so we can say that we are now on air. Uh, well, well, hello to, to everybody from my side. I am uh, Georgios Plevrakis, Director of Global Sustainability for ABS. Um, I just would like to say a few words. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a huge honor to moderate this very interesting panel. Uh, thank you to the organizers, yet another impressive event by Capital Link. Um, before we start, uh, I will ask the audience to allow me to do some housekeeping. Um, like the panel before, and of course the panel after this, we have a very interesting topic to address. Um, the level of the panelists in this panel also is a beacon by itself. Uh, I would hate to overlap with the panel following hours, and at the same time, I want to give to our panelists the time to express their view. Um, therefore, I would kindly ask for the questions to be reserved for the networking uh, event after the panel or to be submitted and the panelists and myself will address the questions in a later time. Um, jumping straight to the topic uh, and in order to prepare some groundwork, I would like to um, uh, say a few introductory words from my side. Um, international shipping is facing the critical challenge of uh, sustainability in response to uh, global regulations for pollution prevention and protection of the aquatic environment. And as the industry prepares for the emerging regulatory changes in 2030 and 2050, there is consensus that we are entering a period of uncertainty driven by disruptive environmental legislation, which will ultimately be defined by the innovative solutions will which will emerge. The rate of shipping transitions to uh, lower carbon fuels will have the single biggest impact on its global carbon footprint. More than any predictable shifts in commodity demand and enhancement to operating practices, um, vessel routings or ship designs. But taking the fuel topic aside, Decarbonization can also be achieved through a matrix of solutions, including new efficiency technologies and operating and operational optimization. Joining me today to discuss how a company navigates through these challenges and more are, starting from the lady of our panel, uh, Ms. Joanna Prokopiu, CEO of uh, Prominence Maritime. Welcome. Welcome, Joanna. Um, Mr. Alexander. Savaris, CEO of CMB Group. Welcome, Alex. Hello, um, Mr. Christian Ingerslev, CEO of Maersk Tankers. Welcome, Christian. Thank you. Mr. Badar, Executive Vice President, MSC Group. Welcome, Bad. And Mr. Rajasuni, Captain Rajasuni. Welcome, Rajas. So to kick it off, uh, I would like to um, pose a question to the panel uh, uh, after we have done this groundwork. Um, what do you consider as the biggest barriers to decarbonization? We've, I, I made a, a short introduction on the, uh, on, the, on the matrix of solutions, uh, fuels, uh, operations, uh, efficiency technologies, um, the impact of uh, regulations, um, but what is what is the biggest barrier that you see ahead of us right now? I, I would like to start with with the lady of our panel, Joanna. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. I was muted. Um, I, it's a very interesting question because usually we look at it from the other side. So let's talk about what the barriers, what I see as the barriers from uh, for decarbonization. So um, I think that at the moment, from what we hear and what we have been all been reading, there are no proven alternatives to fossil fuels. Uh, a lot of what is being suggested is not practical or available in a large scale. And in many cases, it doesn't even uh, yield the environmental benefit that it is intended to do. Uh, in the past, it used to be the case that you had, first somebody would invent a new technology, then they would test it, then the regulation would come and then they would implement it. But nowadays we see all of this in, in reverse. So there, that has created a, a problem for uh, the ship owning side and the side of the ships because we have difficulty finding such a, a technical uh, uh, solution. Also, I think another problem to the path for decarbonization is that we lately have been hearing about uh, local regulations like the EU emissions trading scheme that is being discussed. So this leads to, to fragmentation that is never a good thing because it undermines the role of uh, IMO. And uh, as shipping is a global industry, you need, uh, it requires global, uh, global rules. And just a small parenthesis for the ETS, when they impose ETS to aviation, they didn't see any actual cutting of the emissions. Uh, also taxing uh, emissions or uh, trading emissions usually results in a pot of money and uh, it's a little bit delicate. Who will handle the funds? For what reason will they be used? And you know, there's a question, can we trust the countries and the politicians to do such a thing? So I think for, for, from my side, at least there's no clear path for uh, decarbonization or, or even a guidance towards the right, uh, uh, right path for decarbonization. So in a, um, in a nutshell, I would say that um, uh, there is what I have noted down is um, uh, a lack of, of clarity as far as the, the path is concerned, um, uh, and uh, practical solutions being proposed for uh, the uh, challenge of decarbonization. Um, fragmented uh, a landscape as far as the approach is concerned and not a, um, and not a, a global um, uh, a global approach. Um, which one of these elements, uh, Alex, do you find that uh, uh, are the ones that uh, are indeed the biggest barriers or do you think that there are more to this? I personally think that um, the only real barrier is the difference between the cost of new technologies and the cost of current fuels. Uh, either current fuels become more expensive or new technologies becomes, become cheaper. Uh, I'm sure that uh, if that cost barrier reduces, you will have people that will come up with solutions. As you know, we've been uh, investigating uh, hydrogen applications since uh, more than four years now. and. Um, I'm actually very optimistic about the chances of finding uh, new technologies that can solve the problem, but it's a cost issue. And uh, when we talk about costs, someone has to pay it. Uh, ship owners, operators, the end customer. Um, so either we find it, um, uh, something to bridge that gap or we find a customer that pays for it.
Thank you, Alex. So, um, Alex has also included in this, uh, uh, in this barrier landscape the cost element as well. Um, what, uh, what would you put as a, um, as a highest, as a biggest barrier uh, to this equation, uh, Christian? What do you think? Yeah, so I think uh, if we just uh, take a step back and look at our industry, then we work in an industry that hasn't really experienced any significant historical disruption. It's fairly fragmented and the financial results that we have experienced for many years have been quite weak. Uh, but it's also an industry where we have a very clear incentive to pursue reductions because it directly impacts the, the bottom line. The challenge that I see is that it requires scale. And I consider that the biggest barrier for decarbonization. Uh, smaller vessels owners, they don't have the luxury to make a lot of innovative bets, uh, which besides uh, sort of scale and re uh, requires data, uh, capital and external pressure from disruptive forces. Uh, so, you know, the larger you are, the more resources, data and impact to innovate and drive lasting change you have. And I think that's sort of a fundamental challenge that the industry faces. Very interesting uh, uh, about uh, your comment about the um, fragmented nature of, of our industry uh, and the, the different speeds but by which the different sectors uh, could, uh, the different players could move towards achieving their decarbonization targets. Um, as far as this type of, um, of uh, this type of approach looking at the um, at the fragmented nature of our industry. Um, uh, and I would like to, uh, to uh, get, get uh, your response, uh, but at this, um, how, what do you see from an MSC perspective um, as the biggest barrier to decarbonization? Uh, do you agree with, um, uh, with the previous speakers? Is it something that you would uh, like to add? So um, I agree in part, and 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 in in some parts I, I, I differ in my view. So um, let me start with disruption. Although um, I I think that we definitely could talk about the the scope of disruption. There certainly has been disruption in our industry over time. Um, there have been other major transitions. You know, those uh, in propulsion from um, from ore power to sail power, from sail power to coal, from coal. Uh, to oil and diesel engines. The difference with all of those revolutions was in each of those cases, technology had evolved, even if it was rudimentary technology of sale, to say, hey, here's something better. Why don't you do this? This is a totally different paradigm we find ourselves in, where this type of disruption is, you can't keep doing what you're doing. You have to do something fundamentally different, but we can't tell you what the solution is. And I think the fact that we can't be told what the solution is, is where that fragmentation um, sometimes works against us, but it can also be a strength. Because I'd like to focus on the good in this, in the opportunity in it. And it is, if we open our eyes, if we maybe break ourselves away from our existing notions of what ships and propulsion have to be, maybe consult um, some young bright minds that don't have those pre-existing ideas of what we've always done or what we have to do, 
maybe we have a wider suite of potential breakthroughs to come from. Because in our company, and we're a very diverse company, we're the uh, 17 modern cruise ships, 12 ocean-going ferries, uh, roughly 500 cargo ships, and then a lot of small uh, coastal high-speed craft as well. And so we're kind of a microcosm of the broader industry, and we're finding there's no one pathway. Um, it really matters a lot what the type of ship is, the service that you're going to deploy it on. If you're talking about a retrofit or even an investment in a new ship, what is the expected lifespan? And all the things kind of add up a bit differently with all these options, none of which are perfect options. They all have challenges to be overcome. But I'm optimistic that if we keep an open mind about those pathways and don't look for the one silver bullet because I don't believe it exists, but rather look for a solution set that we can apply in the case of our company, which is quite diverse throughout our enterprise or in a broader sense throughout the inner industry to match up the right solution sets with the right operating profiles. Um, I, I think it's there, but the one thing that I think is probably the most important in this is that the thing that ha probably has to begin more seriously the most urgently is the longest term sort of payback. And that is what are those best alternative fuel, differing technologies for propulsion, even in prime movers fundamentally, compared to what we have today. That's really the end state here because all the other things we're talking about with energy efficiency or various transitional fuels um, or market-based measures are just stop gaps on that journey to get to that final answer. We can't get there soon enough. So that means we cannot have started much more seriously than we are as an entire community, not just ship owners, but academia and governments working together to get those solutions on a faster track than they are right now because ship owners will respond. And when that financial gap um, that Alexander mentioned is narrowed, we'll jump right in there when those solutions are available. Thank you, Bud. I, I find really interesting um, uh, your notes on, um, on, on linking the different operational profiles on how you actually select the proper solution based on, on your specific business case. Um, so uh, I understand that uh, what you say is that one size does not fit all in this particular case. Um, uh, and, um, and the fact that uh, uh, this is so far not something that we have been used to uh, in the industry. Um, the fact that this disruption is bigger than the one that we had earlier, um, this is something that uh, it's not, it's taking us out of the business as usual, I understand. Um, talking about business and uh, market pressures or market opportunities, um, I'd like to, to shift the question now to, to Rajesh. Um, we talked about biggest barriers to decarbonization. Um, how does that um, affect uh, your your um, uh, your decarbonization strategy. Um, how do how do you see market pressures um, having an effect on, on 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 the strategy of your company? Uh, thanks for asking, George. I I, I I like the kind of responses that's coming from the panel. So just to try and find the 
link at correlation. See, normally uh, a regulatory firm framework has, you know, two types of adoption. One is when you have a robust and cost-effective technology like the hull paints, then it gets adopted very quickly. And then you have this case where it's a new technology and there's limited test and feasibility studies where it's, you know, somehow a little bit of the unknown. So for me, one of the things that IMO has set broad guidelines, but what we perhaps want is a more robust thermodynamic framework that maps the entire carbon cycle, CO2 cycle, whereby that gets access for people to make detailed problem statements and then potential solutions. So that's, that's one thing that I see. And then obviously things like cost, which Alex mentioned. So if you look at data, just uh, I like to back up something with data. So if you look at the recent journals, right? Uh, and they say that if you have an Aframax ship, uh, that is on the base case with heavy fuel oil and NGO, and then if you want to achieve some of these reductions, like in 2030, if you want to achieve 54% or 50% reduction CO2, the only combination today is LNG as a fuel and then some exhaust gas recovery and carbon capture. So I feel carbon capture is an inevitable short-term solution. Uh, so in, in a nutshell, I think IMO needs to come up with a more clear plan before 2023 on the short term uh, so that there are still, I think, low-hanging fruits that we can, we can capitalize on, whether it's EEDI, and we have done a ton of work on that, which I'm happy to talk later, or SEAM. Uh, and then, obviously, once that is done, uh, for companies like us who primarily look at ourselves as a trusted technical thought partner, this is a huge opportunity. I think we've invested time and resources for the last three, four years on this. So for us, we think this is a huge opportunity because the impact of these regulations are going to be multifolded. Like it's going to be on infrastructure, whether it's retrofits or new designs, it's going to be on competency of the workforce, it's going to be on new processes for this whole thing, it's going to be on new business models, it's going to be training to prepare these you know, competent workforce. And then obviously also creating awareness and acceptance that this is something that we need to collectively build for a sustainable future. So for us, the impact I think is very positive. Uh, internally, also there's a lot of challenge in saying, why do you want to invest your own personal time and resource into this? But I think it's a well-invested cause. And, and, and we are quite positive. Um, so if you look at a couple of things that we have done, whether it is EEDI, uh, we look at you know, air cavity lubrication is one thing that's come up uh, with people. But what we're trying to see is, can we take off uh, fouling itself by creating a stabilized nanobubbles uh, by electrochemical reaction, for example? Or can we use batteries, which are not lithium, but green batteries, and using renewable energy to power them? Uh, or we're talking about fleet optimization. We've been working with Merchline and others, where we've achieved 9% fuel optimization, which is around 200 smart voyages, which is close to you know 8,000 tons of CO2, 25,000 case socks. So there are small uh, you know, achievable steps, I think, compared to always targeting the long-term objective first before working back. There are these steps that need to go in place to achieve the 2030 deadline. And that's more dependent on EEDI and SEAM. I think that is something that we can do. So we are very positive about this. Thank you, Rajesh. Um, I have been taking notes. Uh, I see that um, uh, you have, uh, in your company, you have created a very impressive um, matrix of looking at the different types of solutions, also on the maturity side, 
uh, on the practicality side, uh, what can affect your design index, what can affect your operations, and you're taking a very positive approach to that. Um, now, I'd like to um, shift gears a bit and see how, um, how we, we can implement decarbonization uh, from, a, from a company perspective uh, and, and practices. How do you build the strategy? And I'd like to uh, address this question to, uh, to Christian. Christian, how does Merck Tankers, as a leading commercial manager, take its part in, uh, in the decarbonization of the industry? Yeah, thank you. Um, so CO2 reduction is actually an integral part of our strategy. It's, it's one of the three key metrics that we measure success against. Um, and we think uh, this is important because uh, so the part of the industry we are in, in the tanker side, it is very fragmented. And that's also why we think that larger companies, they need to take a step forward if we are to reach the reduction goals that we have set forward within the IMO. So um, we drive this uh, through the use of our scale and we do that in four areas. Uh, we uh, attract new partners. Uh, so we've grown significantly from 160 product tankers to 225 over the last year. And that allows us to constantly optimize our trade patterns. Then of course we explore new technical solutions. So amongst others, we've been testing these uh, rotor sails on one of our vessels reaching 8.2% reductions in emissions. The third is that we are developing digital solutions. So, uh, so far uh, our investments into digital solutions, which is about $9 million over the last two years, has left to a, a software product we call Simbunkers. And it reduces CO2 emissions and improves thereby also uh, bunker spend by optimizing speed, route, and procurement. And we've actually decided that we are spinning off this uh, software into a new standalone digital business, uh, allowing it to really accelerate to become more of an industry tool rather than an in-house thing for most tankers. And then lastly, uh, we engage in partnerships. This is not something we can do alone. And as, as Bud mentioned, it's, it's about really thinking uh, what is the breakthrough technology longer term. So we are one of the founding members of the Getting to Zero Coalition, where sort of like-minded companies come together to look at these breakthrough innovation opportunities. So there is a, there is a multifaceted approach, I see. Um, uh, optimization of, of trade patterns, so it's uh, optimization of utilization, introduction of uh, energy efficiency technologies, uh, and all this being enhanced by digital uh, solutions. Last but not least, um, participation to um, big industry forums um, uh, were the uh, exploration of, uh, specifically for this Getting to Zero Coalition, the explore, exploration of uh, new uh, alternative fuel solutions uh, is the key. Having said that, um, and I'd like to get back uh, to uh, the lady of our panel, uh, Ioana, uh, the industry is focusing a lot on the potential of alternative fuels uh, to, as the big contributor to the reduction of maritime emissions. What do you think the focus should be on uh, when one is evaluating this, uh, that potential? 
Um, I'm very tempted to go back to what Rajesh spoke about, the, the low-hanging fruit. Um, we haven't mentioned operational measures for low-hanging fruit towards decarbonization. Um, slow steaming is one of the most proven and easily implemented uh, low-hanging fruit for reducing uh, CO2 emissions. I'll give you an example. In 2015, we saw 30% reduction in carbon intensity compared to 2008 levels. So this is a huge thing that um, could well be an, an, in, an interim solution for the longer term uh, it, to the, towards the path for decarbonization. Because the more we pollute now, it's going to stay in the atmosphere for a very long time. So until technology catches up with us, slow steaming is a great alternative. But anyhow, I'll go back to the interesting question where which you which you uh, placed me so yeah, that was a good link with what uh, christian was saying earlier about uh, optimization of uh, of utilization so uh, it was a good point there thanks i think that the, the most important factor when we look at uh, a new fuel or a suggested fuel is first of all to have a proven environmental uh, benefit so in order to do that one should look um, throughout the life cycle of a, of a fuel. So we should have a holistic approach and have clear and uh, proven environmental impact for such a fuel. And that also means that it's sustainably sourced. Until now, regulation is from tank to, we to wake, which means from the time that you put the fuel on board your vessel and until you, you burn it in and it's producing a movement in your propeller. There is a, a huge part before that, which is the uh, fuel production, which is extraction, processing, refining, transportation, distribution, the bankering, and then the combustion. So in order to have, a, let's say, a real environmental um, decision as to where this is a sustainable, environmentally sourced, etc., you need to look at the whole process, which is called from um, well to wake. Um, I'll give you an example, ammonia, which is would be considered carbon neutral, if it was produced from renewables. At the moment, it's very expensive to do such a thing. So we are producing ammonia from fossil fuels. Therefore, this is not an environmental fuel. Again, we, we went to uh, very low sulfur fuel oil and ultra low sulfur fuel oil. Apart from the fact that there is some research demonstrating that, that socks do have a cooling effect for the atmosphere, the production of the compliant fuel requires more energy. Therefore, the emissions are increased towards the production phase of the, uh, of the uh, fuel production. Again, if you cut forests to produce, to, to grow crops that will produce biofuels, again, we cannot call this sustainably sourced. So I think one, one part of this whole equation is very much how this fuel ended up in the tank of the vessel. Um, I think a very uh, important factor is that we need bunkering infrastructure that will be enough for, to have uh, uh, bunkering ports in all continents in order for the vessels to be able to sail safely uh, around the globe. At the moment, LNG, for example, that is a marine fuel um, that has been around for about 40 years. Still, we only have about 2% is, uh, is used as fuel. And the problem with that as well is that it has very few bunkering stations. 
apart from methane sleep, which is another topic that I, I will not touch upon. Then when we're talking about another, um, an alternative fuel, we need to have a fuel that is safe for burning in the engines and safe for, for humans to handle. Uh, a lot of the new fuels that we're discussing are toxic and they have uh, difficult handling, either requiring very low temperatures or high pressure or are toxic. Also in the case that, that it was a relatively easy transition from HFO to very low sulfur fuel oil. When ship owners started burning this fuel in their engines, we saw a lot of problems um, with this fuel because it is an unstable fuel. It cannot be mixed. It's aging very fast. It has a huge variation between uh, um, where you get it. So we had uh, us as well as many other companies had the blocking of filters. We had uh, damages in the cylinder linings, etc. And in many cases, this can lead to, to blackouts, which is very dangerous, especially when you're in uh, narrow, um, narrow corridors. Also, another thing that we need to consider when looking at an alternative fuel is the energy content, the energy density of the fuel. Hydrogen, for example, has about one fourth energy content of the HFO. So as you can understand, if it's one fourth of energy content, you need four times more tanks or more fuel in order to have the same energy. Therefore, there's a, it affects to a big extent the design of the ship and its carrying capacity. Because if you have four times more tanks, you have a lot less um, space for fuel. As the same is for batteries. Uh, actually, it was the ABS that, uh, I, I, George, you showed us this presentation, that if you have a 2000 TEU container to be uh, able to travel 2000 nautical miles with batteries, 70% of the vessel would be batteries. So again, it is a huge problem um, when it comes to considering these things. Also, you need to dispose batteries in an environmental um, manner, which again is questionable. Now, moving on to cost, which is something that Alex mentioned, and of course, it's a huge uh, impact to the decisions. And uh, as a, other panelists mentioned as well, the market has been has been quite weak over the last few years. So you cannot expect to, to make these huge investments unless they're also gonna make sense for the, uh, for the end users. Let's say, for example, when we went from HFO to VLSFO, we had 30 to 60 billion uh, more bunker fuel costs. And this is only from a, a, a relatively easy transition so with such high capital expenses for redesigns and retrofits, uh, the employment of the vessel needs to justify pouring all this money into, into, your, into your assets. Um, of course, you can have early adopters, which are ships that are already burning LPG, for example. They can use it in dual fuel uh, engines as well as LNG again. But... It is very much uh, on a small scale at, the, at this point. Um, I think I think uh, I'll put a full stop here and uh, let uh, let you get on with the, the rest of the questions. No, thank you, Anna. This was actually you have framed the problem of uh, of fuels in a very in a very um, efficient way. There are a lot of aspects that one needs to be addressed needs to address. Um, what I've noted is that. Um, uh, you, you have raised the fact that um, 
sustainability in relation to fuels has, has to address a wider, a wider range of topics, uh, not just uh, the tank to wake perspective and, and emissions, but also cost availability, sourcing, and of course, safety. Um, and I have also taken a note about uh, the maturity of solutions. Uh, you've mentioned batteries and the uh, recent uh, and related um, uh, in industry reports. Um, as far as the maturity is concerned and what type of uh, selections are available uh, and options, uh, Alex, um, I'd like to, to shift gears by asking uh, a question to you. We know that uh, CMB is in investing a lot in new technologies. In fact, in the introduction of this discussion, um, uh, you, uh, you mentioned that um, and making the link also to uh, the previous speaker about uh, uh, the different options uh, uh, of the technology, uh, technologies and maturity rates. How does that factor in, in your strategy? Um, the different I think George, rates um, the maturity of the technology will depend on the amount of money we can invest in it. Uh, I think if we invest uh, the money that we have invested, for instance, in scrubbers, $15 billion, if we invest the money we have spent uh, on top uh, between high sulfur fuel oil and low sulfur fuel oil, what Johanna says is 20 to $40 billion, if we would have invested these kinds of amounts of money uh, 10 years ago into new technologies, the ships would already been there. I fully agree with Johanna that there's a lot of questions about the sustainability of hydrogen, ammonia, batteries, etc. I do think that that's not my problem. I'm a shipping person. Let shipping people invest in good ships. Let shipping people invest in the shipping technology and the rest will follow. I've never, I think in the history of our company invested in an oil well or an LNG uh, production facility. We just took the fuels that were available, obviously taking into account the cost. So basically on the maturity, I can say only two things. I think we can get there if we invest sufficient amounts of money. There's a lot of bright people and entrepreneurs out there in shipping that can find solutions. And obviously we can't do it by ourselves. I fully agree with Christian uh, and actually with everybody on the panel that we have to collaborate and work together. Eventually we will need the help of our customers and suppliers. We can't pick up the bill ourselves. We can't do the technology ourselves, but it is feasible. We can do this by 2025. We can do this by 2030 and we can definitely do it by 2050. This is, this is a good note to, to lead us to the, um, to the conclusive question that I'd like to, to raise to, uh, to this panel. Um, and um, Alex, Alex, thank you for, for raising that. Um, uh, what, what would you propose um, to the global maritime community to uh, promote environmental sustainability of, of our industry? Um, and I'd like to listen to, to, to Bud uh, on this. What I'd like to propose is uh, real commitment and commitment from the entire community, not just the ship owners. I agree with Alex's comments. It shouldn't be for us to develop all the technical solutions here. It should be for us to buy good quality ships um, with the best available technology and operate them efficiently over their lifespan. And in um, some cases, um, we can improve the operations. 
uh, I thank Yana for uh, highlighting what is actually a very fierce debate within the industry as to whether or not slow steaming is uh, low-hanging fruit or whether it's a distortion in the marketplace or not suitable for all um, all ship types. Uh, we take a somewhat different different view of it, but that's an ongoing discussion I won't go into. Um, but we can operate ships more efficiently. In some cases, that means operating at slower speeds and operating with um, uh, maybe with reduced power that's suitable for the service it's going to be in. So I think um, binding together, really being optimistic and serious about deploying the technologies when they become avail available, making good choices in design, good choices in fleet renewal, good choices in operation, and recognizing this is a very real problem that although you know, some estimates are maybe 2.2% of the anthropogenic emissions come from shipping at the moment. That doesn't mean it's not our problem. It is our problem. We have to do our part and we have to be very, very serious about living up to the expectations of ourselves, our customers and society as a whole. Living up to expectations of society as a whole. Uh, Rajesh, any, any final notes? I have three things. One is what I said earlier, take the IMO guidelines, build a robust thermodynamic framework, capture the entire CO2 cycle to Iona's point, okay? and put power, energy density, safety, and all the metrics. The second, look at megawatts. When I'm saying megawatts, is negative watts. To try and look at how do you save energy versus losing them. And third, you know carbon conversion, uh, carbon capture is part of the inevitable process. Then look at carbon capture with conversion. And, and finally, I think there must be some incentive, whether it's through a levy, I don't know what, but there must be incentive to Alex's point to spur the innovation and adoption. Because I genuinely think this is the right thing to do. And I'm 100% confident if we do that right, we will get there. Uh, there is enough uh, that we can do before we reach 2030 in terms of SIMP and uh, EEGI. So I'm positive about it. Thank you, Rajesh. Christian, you mentioned uh, getting to zero coalition. Uh, more or less, uh, you have given us a flavor of what you think about this last question. Um, any, any, any last comment on, on, on what we should, what we can do as a global maritime community to promote environmental sustainability? Look, I think uh, the maritime industry is, is hugely important for the world, and it's the most energy efficient way of transporting goods. Uh, but we need to become more uh, sustainable as an industry, and it requires profound changes in the way we operate today. So it's, of course, a challenge, but I also really think we need to start looking at it as a huge opportunity. It's an opportunity that we need to embrace, um, and we need to be the ones who, who step out and create the sustainable future, uh, and there's significant financial incentive to do that. Uh, so to me, it's really about coming together as an industry uh, and ensuring that the environmental agenda is ours. Um, that's really the key for me. I think, I think we need to turn it around. Thank you, Christian. And Joanna, any, any final comments? Just a quick one. I think, first of all, as everyone has said, it's very important for everyone in, the, in, the, in our industry to understand that the, the environmental is, uh, improving the environment is a necessity. So we have to stop pushing the envelope for, and, and to take decisions that are long-term based. And the other thing that we as a company have found very, very helpful is involve also environmental groups in the discussion because they, at the end of the day, they care about the environment and uh, 
it's very important to have their view. I mean, whenever we've done discussions with them or meetings with them, we find it very, very helpful. So this is another idea. Thank you, Anna. So at this moment, uh, our time is up. Thank you. Uh, thank you to all of you. Uh, this has been a, a great discussion. I think that we have raised a lot of topics. Uh, we have addressed the need for uh, regulation, the clarity from regulation, uh, the need to approach the decarbonization problem from many sides, uh, look at it from a wider range of uh, perspectives and uh, at the end uh, come together in a global uh, initiative uh, and address uh, the challenge. I would like to thank the panelists and thank the audience for uh, staying with us. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. It's really been my pleasure.